This week, our transformational truth was God's best is worth the wait. And we know that the longer we walk with him, the more intimate that relationship becomes and the more he reveals of himself to us. But we also know the very best will not be experienced in this life. So while it's true for this life, it is ultimately gloriously true for the next. And that is the one we long for. And we remember that we are strangers, aliens, we are simply passing through. We do not belong to this world. And the more intimate we are with Jesus, the less attached we are to the world. So we're opening in Genesis 41, and things are about to change very drastically for Joseph. Begin in verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years. Do you hear the links in that? <laughs> that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Now that was the job of these magicians. And they literally had books on dream interpretation. But there was nothing in their books and nothing from their experience that gave them insight into these two dreams. Then the chief cupbearer, aha, his memory is jogged, right? He says, oh, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him. And he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Wow. Okay, all of a sudden, he remembers Joseph. And why? Because Pharaoh has had a couple of dreams. Now, the first dream about the fat healthy cows, and then the skinny gaunt cows, and then the second dream about the seven ears of grain, which we've most often, I have seen it like ears of corn. That's technically not what it is. It's like ears of cereal grain, and you have an explanation of that on your handout. And it was, it was the harvest was unbelievable. It was so potent. The word sibilet is a Hebrew word, and it refers to the seed atop the stalks of grassy cereal plants. It is that part of the plant that's cut and gathered. The stalk is the stem of the plant. That they were sprouting from a single stalk testified to their potency. Because of its abundance in the Nile Valley, the stalk or reed is associated especially with Egypt. Now, Pharaoh has had two dreams. They're obviously very vivid, and he wakes up troubled by them. And because he had two dreams, he's wanting somebody to interpret them for him. 
Now, I think when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, okay, Joseph has had dreams. Now, Pharaoh's having dreams. The cupbearer had a dream. Cupbearer, the baker had a dream. Does God still speak through dreams? Obviously, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Where are some other places in Scripture where we have seen God speak through dreams? And not just to his people, but also sometimes to pagans. And if you look at your list there, and it's not an exhaustive list, I just kind of walked through some of the ones that came to my top of my mind. Abimelech with Abraham. Do you remember the second time he threw Sarah under the bus and Abimelech took her into his harem and God woke him up in the middle of the night and said, if you touch that woman, you're a dead man? Well, God spoke to him through a dream and he released Sarah back to Abram and the next year she gives birth to Isaac. Laban had a dream about not touching Joseph because Uh, Jacob, because God was with him. Jacob had a dream about the staircase to heaven with the angels coming up and going down. We've already looked at the baker and the cupbearer's dreams, Pharaoh's dreams. Gideon overhears someone recounting a dream in the enemy's territory and knows that God is going to give them victory in their battle. Solomon had a dream. And in that dream, God told him to ask for whatever he wanted. And what did he ask for? Wisdom. God granted him wisdom, but he also gave him many other things. And under Daniel, add to that 7 through 10. Because if you look at 7 through 10, it is one dream after vision, after dream, after interpretation, after another. And in fact, Daniel 7, 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. We know Nebuchadnezzar had a couple of dreams. In the New Testament, God gave Joseph two dreams. One, to flee to Egypt because Herod was going to seek to kill Jesus. And then another dream telling him it was safe to come back because Herod had died. Pilate's wife had a dream. She had a dream that Pilate should not touch this righteous man. And yet we know he did not listen. And then Paul had a dream, a Macedonian vision. A man from Macedonia in the middle of the night is telling him, come to Macedonia and help us. And from that, he concluded that the Holy Spirit, because God had prevented him from going a couple of other places, was calling them now to go to Macedonia, which is Greece. And it's there that the church in Philippi was founded, Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens. What does the word of God say? In Numbers 12, verse 6, it says, When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. And then Joel 2, 28, And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And we know this was actually fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, When Peter said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and he actually quoted this scripture and told the people listening, it's happening before your very eyes. That's why all these men and women have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and they're speaking the gospel in your language, your dialect, so that everyone can hear. But I love this quote from Temper Longman's commentary about dreams. He said, here is a principle that is inviolable. Though God can speak to us through dreams, he speaks most clearly to us through scripture, which is the word of God. Any message we get through a dream or through any other mode of revelation will never contradict or work against the word of God as presented in scripture. 
There are people who think every dream you have has some kind of spiritual interpretation. That is not true. We see that God speaks sparingly through dreams and a lot of times reveals himself to people who are seeking him. One of those examples is a man named Nabil Koresh. He was a Pakistani-American who converted from Islam to Christianity while he was in college. He's the author of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, A Devout Muslim Encounters Christianity, as well as a couple of other books. He came to Christ in college after having three different dreams. And it was in the midst of these dreams that a Christian friend told him about Joseph in the Old Testament, as well as Joseph in the New Testament, and God speaking to them through dreams. And it was after the third dream that Nabil was convinced that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and he turned to him in faith and was saved, and became a Christian apologist. In the book, The Insanity of God, written by Nick Ripken, which was a pseudonym because at the time he was still traveling into persecuted Christian uh, nations and did not need to reveal his actual identity. His name, though, since then has been revealed. It's Ken Perkins. He was a former IMB missionary to Africa, and they served in Africa and Sudan and a couple of other places, and his 16-year-old son who had asthma died after a severe asthma attack on the field, and they came back to the States. It was while they were back in the States working through their grief and processing God's call on their life that God opened a new door for him to go into countries that are closed to Christianity. And so he was going in to find out how God was expanding his church in these persecuted nations, these closed countries, how the church seemed to be just exploding in many of them. And what he found was God was speaking to many through dreams and visions. But it was to those who began to wonder, could the God of the Bible actually be God? Have we been deceived? In fact, he tells story after story in the various places he's been, so miraculous that God's working on somebody's heart and then he brings a Christian across their path, a missionary or a believer in their own uh, nationality who will either pass a Bible to them. Like one of the guys was in the marketplace and it, they'd said it was a blue-covered Bible. And so it, was, it happened to three different men. And then God brought those three men together who began to pray. And then God brought somebody to them to explain the gospel to them. But one of the guys was literally walking through the marketplace. And somebody just walked by, stuck the book in his hand, and said, I was told to give this to you. If you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit and you're open to being used, he will allow people that he's already working on to come across your path so that you can share the truth of the gospel with them. So dreams in our day seem to be given primarily to those seeking God. And it is amazing how the Lord orchestrates believers' lives to bring them across the path of seekers. And so the question for us is, are you willing? Are you open? Will you be that vessel through which the Lord draws someone else to himself? So we're moving on now, and we see Joseph is finally remembered. The cupbearer has relayed the story to, the, to Pharaoh. And so in verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now look, what's he, he's saying, you have this ability to do this. And what does he quickly say? Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. 
God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So then Pharaoh begins to relay his two dreams. So jump over to verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. And I want you to see how many times he gives an credit to God and acknowledges God. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and that God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine." Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. So what are we seeing here? He brings him in. The cupbearer remembers. They shave him. They clean him up. And they bring him before Pharaoh because he's coming before the most powerful man in the world. They had to get him prepared to be presentable for royalty, right? And he's brought before. Pharaoh recounts the two dreams. And God gives him the understanding, the interpretation, but also what they need to do to prepare And take a fifth of the grain, 20% of all the grain every year for the next seven years, store it all over Egypt, build storage places in all of the cities, put overseers over them. And then when the famine begins, you will have plenty of grain and you can sell the grain back to the people. God's timing is perfect. Probably need to say that to ourselves quite often, don't we? God's timing is perfect is perfect. And what appeared to Joseph and even to us as we're reading this account is that God seems to be very slow or not moving or working, yet God was orchestrating and putting things in place so that at just the right time, Joseph would be presented to Pharaoh. It's exactly what God did in sending the Messiah. The promise goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And then it wouldn't be until Genesis 12 that Abram is chosen and told that through his lineage, the promised one would come. And yet we watch through all of the Old Testament as God is creating and preparing a people, giving the world a common language, putting the Romans in charge to prepare road systems and urban centers so that in the fullness of time, at just the right time, he would send Jesus, the promised one, the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And how does he crush his head? Not in a way that we would expect. He crushes the head of the serpent by crushing sin through his own death on the cross. Paying the penalty for our sin. 
entering into our suffering so that one day he could end it without ending us. That is what we wait upon. That is why we wait on the timing of the Lord. That's why his timing is not only perfect, it's good. He may appear to be slow, but when he begins to move, things happen quickly, as we see in the life of Joseph. So Joseph is about to be exalted. Look at verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God, Pharaoh, is actually contributing this knowledge to God, just as Joseph did. Since God has informed you of all this, there's no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Now, have we not heard this story before? It happened in Potiphar's house. I'm rolling everything over on you. You're responsible for everything. I'm only going to think about what I eat. It happened in the prison. You're in charge of everything. And now it's happening again with Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen. He put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph zaphnath paneah and he gave him Asenoth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Thirteen years have passed since he was betrayed and sold as a slave. But look what the Lord has done. God not only gave him the interpretation, but he gave him the wisdom to prepare for the coming famine. And Potiphar, obviously so moved, does what? Gives him new clothes. <laughs> Here goes those, the robe again. And a signet ring and a gold chain. And he puts him in the second chariot behind Pharaoh. And what does everyone to do? Bow the knee just as they bow before Pharaoh. And then God gives Joseph a wife and two sons. And he names the first son Manasseh, which means God has made me forget all my trouble. And then the second one's name is Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now let's pick back up with verses 53 through 57. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe in all the earth. We mentioned in our first week the comparison of Christ 
and Joseph. How Joseph is a type of Christ, a picture of what was to come in Christ. And there are a couple of other similarities that were pointed out, one by F.B. Meyer. He says the two malefactors of the cross find their counterpart in Joseph's fellow prisoners. Now, what is he talking about? The two thieves crucified on the crosses on either side of Jesus. One believed and went with Jesus to paradise. One did not believe and died and was separated from all of eternity in hell based on what they did with Jesus. They are a picture of all people, all humanity. We will spend eternity with him or separated from him, all based on what we do with Jesus. Based on whether or not we call on the name of the Lord and experience salvation. Joseph, though a Hebrew by birth and rejected by his own brethren, nevertheless was raised to supreme power in a Gentile state and saved myriads of them from death. Jesus, of Jewish birth and yet disowned by Jews, has nevertheless been exalted to the supreme seat of power and is now enthroned in the hearts of myriads of Gentiles to whom he has brought salvation from death and spiritual bread for their hunger. The very name that Pharaoh gave to Joseph meant Savior of the world, our Savior's title. Now the people of Egypt and the surrounding areas were despairing, despite the fact they'd been warned of the coming famine, but they had not prepared. A warning has gone out around the world, and we have missionaries now targeting unreached people groups to take the warning that Jesus Christ is coming and to share the gospel so that everyone can hear. And there will be those who turn to Christ and prepare for Christ's coming, but there will be those who will not prepare, and they will be left behind. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary said, but despair is not necessary. Disaster is not predetermined. God's man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has come. And just as the great king of Egypt told the starving, worried people of his day to go to Joseph, so does the true king of the universe command men and women everywhere today to go to Jesus. Now, as we look at the life of Joseph, we have seen without a doubt that God is sovereign. He absolutely controls all things. That ultimately his plan will come to pass. And what is our job? Our job is to believe. Our job is to believe and trust him and to surrender to his perfect will. And as we do that, we become usable for the advancement of his kingdom and the sharing of the gospel worldwide. But we look at this and we think about suffering and we ask, can God bring good out of suffering and evil? We need look no further than the cross. It is God's way. And we must decide beforehand that God is good and all he does is good, which is what Psalm 119.68 tells us. So that when the trial comes, we cling to who we know God is. It's not in the midst of the suffering that we ask ourselves, is God good? We have to know that we know beforehand 
so that he is that rock upon which we stand, so that we have built our lives on Jesus Christ. And if we know our God, then we will respond as Joseph did, as Job did, as Daniel did, as Deborah did, as Mary did in the New Testament when she said to the angel, be it done to me according to your word. I choose to trust you. Why? Because we know our God. And you have to know him before the trial hits to be able to stand firm in the midst of it. The Pakistani-American that I mentioned to you that converted from Islam to Christianity, Nabil, was diagnosed with stomach cancer in 2016. His stomach was removed. He went through chemotherapy. And in the midst of it, he said, I am praying for healing, but regardless, I will not forsake his name. Sounds so familiar, does it not? We talked about Henrietta Mears last week, and what was the last of the Ten Commandments for Sunday school teachers? What did she say? I will not fail him. The only way we can say that is if we know our God, which took me back to a, a beloved book by Ken Geyer, The Weathering Grace of God. And in this book, he says, um, our study of God will not prepare us for the upheavals of life. Only our experience of God will do that. Joseph experienced God. He had heard the stories, the call of his great-grandfather Abraham, the cutting of the covenant, the promise of a great nation that would bless the world. He had personally encountered God through two dreams that held him close during the betrayal of his brothers being sold as a slave, falsely accused, imprisoned, and yet in every situation, the Lord was with him. And now he's catapulted into this position of great prestige and power, and it does not crush him because he knows his God. And he's been strengthened in his inner man, and he had chosen to believe and to follow God regardless. That's why he was able to stand firm. Now, in his book, Ken Geyer points out, now listen closely to this, that the disciples at Christ's crucifixion fell away from him in the reverse order of their intimacy with him. Now think about that. The disciples fell away from him in the reverse order of their intimacy with him. Who went first? Judas, <laughs> right? The rest of them scatter. Peter, James, and John. We don't know about James, but what do we know about Peter? He followed at a distance. He warmed himself at, the, himself at the world's fire, and ultimately he denied that he knew Jesus. But what do we know about John? John went all the way to the cross. And John would be the one to whom Jesus would transfer the care of his mother. John would be the first to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he would also be the first of the disciples who had gone back to fishing that recognized the voice of the Lord the morning he called to them in his resurrected state from the seashore. But not only that, ultimately, he would be the one chosen to receive the greatest revelation of the resurrected Christ and the end times through the book that he penned 
as the Holy Spirit flowed through him, the book of Revelation. The book of the things yet to come. Why? He knew he was loved. And he responded as a beloved disciple, a true follower of Christ. Do you know this morning that you're loved? Or do you listen to the voice of the enemy who tells you, well, he loves her and he, he loves him, but he doesn't love me. Look at my background. Look what all I've done. Look at the family that I come from. Do you realize, have you focused on the life of Jesus when he walked this planet? Who he went after? <laughs> it wasn't the best of the best. It wasn't those who were shiny and polished. He went after the broken and bruised, the ones that life had been very hard for. And he sought them out. He went after them. Does God speak to you through his word? Do you experience him? Because you can come to Bible study and learn a lot of facts about him, but until you have a personal relationship with him and you experience him speaking to you through his word, you're not going to be able to stand firm in the midst of trials and tribulations because you don't know your God. You've got to know him before you face it, and you will face it. All of us will because we live on a broken planet where difficulties happen, where tribulations come into our lives. God's very clear about that. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you open his word expecting him to speak to you, he will. Maybe not every day, but a lot of days. And there will be days that a verse is almost like it's in bold print. There will be some times that you're reading the word of God and it's like a oh, moment. Of, oh, how have I not seen this before? Oh, Lord, you're speaking to me. Maybe it's something you've been praying for for years. And it's a passage of scripture you've read multiple times. And yet that particular day, it jumps off the page and into your heart. And you know that you know God is speaking to you. That's a promise. And that's a promise that you write down. That's a promise that you memorize, that you meditate on, so that when the enemy taunts you with the lie that this is not true, you go, oh, but yes, it is. Because my God says, it is written. But you've got to know your God. And I know there are going to be some of you in this room, in a room this large, that you think, I don't know that I've ever heard God speak to me like that, personally. Like, I love to hear other people talk about him speaking to them. I get excited about it. I want it, but I'm frustrated. If you want it, you'll get it. But you've got to want him. Jeremiah 29 says, you will find me when you seek for me. How? With all of your heart. About 35 years ago, and I've shared this before, I began to pray Psalm 42.1. <clears throat> As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. That was not a reality in my life at that time, but I wanted it to be. And I prayed that every single day for months. And suddenly one morning, as I was reading my Bible, I realized the words had come to life. And he was speaking to me through his word, and I could not get enough. I, I could hardly put it down to get my kids up, to get ready for school, to take care of the preschoolers. I could hardly stop what I was doing and I would leave it open and I would come back to it any moment I had. And I remember one afternoon sitting back down while somebody was napping. I think Grant was either in kindergarten or first grade and, and there were dishes piled in the sink and I was like, I don't even care. It's like, I was so, I just wanted to get back to what God had been saying to me because I, he was speaking to me and it was so real and, and he was so alive. And I was seeing things I'd not seen before, and I could not get enough. All you have to do is ask and keep on asking. 
Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Do not stop because he will answer. And he will speak to you. And then you will know that you know. And that's what makes your faith rock solid. When you know that you know, the God of this word speaks to you. Amen. Amen. And it is his spirit in this word that's living and breathing that connects with his spirit inside you and brings revelation, brings that illumination of his word so that you understand and you know him. If we decide, as Joseph did, that we will honor our God and trust him with our trials, we will be prepared when the big trial or test comes and we will all have a big trial or test at some point in our life, but we will not fail him because we know our God. And he is faithful to be with us, just as he was with Joseph. Our transformational truth is God's best is worth the wait. Oh, yes, it is in this life, but most certainly in the life to come. When every sad thing will become untrue and every single tear will be wiped from your eye. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you have ignited in the heart of all of us a greater hunger and thirst to know you, to taste and see that you are good, to know in our inner being that you are good and you only do good, that you did enter our suffering so that one day you could end suffering without ending us. Oh, Lord, if you would just open our eyes and allow us to see, because your ways are not our ways, your thought are, thoughts are not our, heart, our thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways and your thoughts higher than ours. It is only when we fully surrender to you and seek you with our whole hearts that you begin to open our eyes. You allow us to see, and you speak to us through your word. You speak to us through the inner promptings of your spirit. And Lord, you strengthen us in our inner man so that we can stand firm and not forsake our God. Choose to not fail you in the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, for any woman here this morning that is crying out, God, I want to hear your voice. God, I want you to speak to me. Lord, I'm asking you to put that within their heart, and do not let them go. May they cry out to you every day, Lord, until they are in tune with your spirit and they begin to hear your voice speaking to them through your word. Lord, may we walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit, and may we know that you are more than worth the wait, however long that wait may be, because you are so good, so good. No eye has seen, no ear has heard all that you have prepared for those who love you. And Lord, it is for that truth we long expectantly, knowing that one day we will experience it. We love you. We give you praise. We thank you for the powerful, liberating truth of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.